0: Good morning. Good morning. Oh, Matt already uh, alluded to the theme of our uh, message this morning, so I'll just ask a question. Uh, have you ever wanted to be great? Have you ever wanted to be the greatest at something? Perhaps at one point you, had, uh, you were a student and you had the ambition to be the top student in your class, the valedictorian. Or maybe you thought it'd be cool to be the first-place runner in a race, or the champion at a soccer match. Or, if you're in the working world, maybe the manager or president of your company. Or maybe you're into the arts, and you'd like to be a famous artist or musician or writer. In the sports world, there's actually an expression for being the greatest. Um, It's called the G-O-A-T, the GOAT. Greatest of all time, and people debate about who is the greatest of all time in their respective sports. So there's some people who think, well, in basketball, it's got to be Michael Jordan, or maybe it's LeBron James, or in the boxing world, a lot of people consider Muhammad Ali the greatest boxer of all time. Now, when I was an unsafe person, um, yeah, I was—I'd uh, say I was somewhat ambitious. Um, I would say to people half-jokingly when they ask me, what do you want to do after graduate?" After graduation? I told them, I want to take over the world. <laughs> now, a lot of people in the world, they do have ambition. They desire to get ahead, to make it big. Now, I would say a lot of people I come across are fine with their jobs and where they're working. But sometimes, uh, people surprise me. There was one person who was actually, he was a believer, but he told me um, he felt by this time in his life, I think he was around 40, he said, you know, I really think at this time I should be vice president of a corporation, which I didn't really know what to say to that. And one of my coworkers at Kaiser, he left uh, the department a couple years ago uh, because he felt at this time in his life he should be a manager and not someone taking orders. Today we're going to look at Greatness from a different angle. We're gonna look at who is great from the Lord Jesus' perspective. How does one become great in God's sight? So we'll just start by reading the passage. We're reading in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 28. Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. And the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life ransom for many. Now just looking at verses 17 and 19, um, this probably took place literally just days before the Lord Jesus was going to be crucified. Jesus was letting his disciples know about his death, burial, and resurrection. Now it wasn't too long ago, it was actually just in chapter 16 and 17 um, Jesus had pretty much told the 12 disciples the same thing. That he was going to be killed and crucified and rise from the dead. Now um, you might wonder, well, um, why is he saying this again? Didn't they hear him the first time or the second time? Well they did, but the problem was that they had a misconception about what the Messiah, what Jesus would be and do at this time. Jesus, in their eyes, he was a Messiah, he was a king. And in their minds, just like that of many people in those days, the Messiah was going to free Israel from Roman oppression, and Israel was going to become the greatest kingdom in all the earth. So to them, it must have seemed impossible that Jesus was going to die. I mean, there were so many prophecies in the Old Testament Talking about the glorious future of the Messiah and his kingdom, it was impossible he would die. Now it's kind of sad, but um, you know, after this really somber announcement that Jesus makes that he's going to die soon, um, two of his disciples, James and John, come to him with um, really a selfish request about their own ambi- about their own ambitions the request is that they might sit one on his right hand, one on his left hand in his kingdom. Now, to give a little background, it might help us know a little bit about the character of James and John. Elsewhere, they showed some streaks of being um, somewhat hot-headed, you could say. So if you look up uh, account in um, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9, there's an instance that's recorded where... Um, a certain uh, Samaritan village rejected the Lord Jesus. Now, James and John, they were pretty upset, and they may have been thinking something like, how dare they reject the Lord Jesus? And um, the reaction was, they asked the Lord if they could call for fire to come down from heaven and obliterate the Samaritans. Now, Jesus had given them, a, what I guess, call a nickname earlier. He had called them uh, well energies in uh, Mark chapter 3 verse 17 um, which is translated sons of thunder and which given how you uh, can see how hot tempered they were in that case it seems like it was an appropriate nickname and um, John we can see in another passage he was also very zealous for the Lord Jesus there's another account mentioned in um, Mark chapter 9 about John and some other disciples forbidding a man Um, from casting out demons in Jesus' name, because as John put it, um, he does not follow us. Now, part of this may have been John being zealous for the Lord. He might have been thinking, well, you know, how this man shouldn't be using the Lord's name without his permission. But another thought that may have been going through his head may have been a little more exclusive, something like, wait a second, only the Lord Jesus and his disciples, like us, can cast out demons in, in his name. So given these bits of James and John's character we see from other parts of the gospel, in a way it's not too surprising that we can see it from this passage, uh, James and John were men of ambition. Now first we see actually uh, the mother of James and John approaching the Lord. And, uh, in Verse 20, we see the mother of Zebedee, whose name Salome, in other parts of the Bible, and I think um, Salome, like many mothers, she wanted her sons to be successful. She wanted them to be great. So she brings this special request to the Lord, that uh, her two sons may sit—one on the Lord's right hand, one on the left. Now, just uh, to be clear, what, what exactly is the mother of James and John asking for here? Like I mentioned before, James and John and their mom and many people around them, they thought Jesus was, was going to set up his earthly kingdom soon. So James and John wanted to reign alongside him. If Jesus was going to be the king, then they wanted to have the top positions of power in the kingdom. To be, as their mom phrased it, at the right and left hand of Jesus. Now, in verse 22, um, if you, uh, there's actually a little shift in the conversation. Um, the Lord Jesus had been talking to solemnly, directly, but then actually now that the Lord directly addresses James and John. Now, uh, it may have been that James and John put their mom up to this, re- up to this request, and the Lord was probably aware of it, Maybe the two brothers thought their odds of getting the request granted was more likely if their mom asked for them. I mean, who could turn down a mom? And Jesus tells them outright that they do not know what they're asking for. He says um, in verse 22, you do not know what you ask. And then he asks them a question. He asks, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with a baptism that I am baptized with? Now, James and John, um, we already know, they don't really know what they're asking for. And they didn't, probably didn't know what exactly Jesus meant by this baptism in a cup that he was speaking about. They probably had the vague idea that Jesus was speaking of some kind of trial that he would have to go through. Now, just to be clear, um, what was this cup that Jesus was talking about and this baptism that he was going to be baptized with? Now, he was just uh, talking about it earlier in the passage in verses 17 to 19. He was referring to his sufferings, which he was going to experience soon, his coming betrayal and death on the cross. Later in this Gospel of Matthew chapter 26, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus refers to what he's going to face in his sufferings as this cup. He prays to his Father, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And um, in the Gospel of Luke, the Lord mentions that I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Now, um, it's not recorded if James and John had any hesitation in answering Jesus. But uh, I don't think there was. I mean, these are the sons of thunder we were talking about here. So when it's recorded, they said, we are able, in verse 22, you know, I think they actually said it with a very confident tone, probably something like, yeah, we got this. And the Lord answered them this way in verse 23. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. The Lord uh, predicts that they, uh, James and John, they were going to go through the same sort of trial that he was going to go through they were going to suffer persecution to the death, to the point of death, just like he was. But Jesus tells them that also it was not um, in his authority to give them what they were asking, But that was for his father. And if we look at what ends up happening to James and John, um, we, we see what the Lord means. They served in the early church with their lives. I'll just read a couple verses from the book of Acts. This is um, Acts chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. It says, Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, James's death probably occurred about some 17 years after the death of the Lord Jesus. Now, the apostle John lived for a number of years after this. Um, at least in one account, this is, um, this is from the, uh, what's called a Fox's Book of Martyrs. Um, there's a record in the history that there was an attempt made to execute John. It says that uh, um, he was, the Romans tried to execute him by throwing him into a vat of boiling oil. But miraculously, he survived. But he would later spend years exiled on an island called Patmos. Now, going to verse 24, and when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Now, um, even though the Lord Jesus did not grant James and John the request, um, their their actions still got the other disciples very upset. Uh, We see um, throughout the Gospels, the twelve disciples were actually a very competitive group of men each wanted to be considered the greatest disciple. And this competition, it was nothing new. Was, uh, you can look through several other passages in the Bible where it's mentioned that the disciples argued about which one of them was the greatest. Now, I can picture the other ten apostles being uh, resentful of James and John. Maybe they felt something like, James and John, how low could they get? I mean, putting their mom up to asking favors from the Lord? Hmm. And so, this, so that this request, doesn't come, this request doesn't cause more ill will among the disciples, Jesus calls them over because he's going to clear up a misconception about what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. So I'll just read the last few verses again. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, this passage is something, it really redefines what true greatness is. It really turns upside down what we think about what, how greatness is achieved. First, the Lord talks about um, what the world considers great. Greatness in the eyes of the disciples was having first place. People who have power are great. People who are in charge, who are giving orders, have greatness. And when the Lord says... Um, you note know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. That phrase, "lorded over them, uses a Greek word that means to bring under one's power or to subdue. The second word is, um, when he says uh, um, exercise authority, is to like wield full privilege over. Basically, the rulers of the Gentiles were known for gaining power by you know, forcibly bringing other people under them and then taking advantage of their position of power to exploit those now under them. Now, in terms of um, this phrase rulers of the, of the Gentiles, there's plenty of um, historical examples that might have come to mind. Um, the fact was the uh, Jewish people, they had been conquered many times in their past history. They had been Um, conquered by nations like Assyria, like Babylon, like the Persian Empire, like the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. And at this present time, they were under the Roman Empire ruled by the Caesars. And in many of these cases, the people of Israel had been really ruthlessly conquered. Many of them had been killed and mistreated at the hands of their conquerors. And once they had been conquered, the conquering nation exercised authority over them. At this present time, they were under the Romans. And it wasn't just that the Romans um, taxed the Jewish people. Um, There were actually all kinds of things. Uh, People today might complain about paying their income taxes and sales taxes, but the Roman government found all kinds of creative ways to tax people. There wasn't just a sales tax and income tax. There was a... Land tax, there was a crop tax, there was a bridge tax, there was a road tax, there were import taxes, there were export taxes. And it wasn't just that, but um, a Jewish person could find themselves pressed into service by a Roman official at any time. Now, we looked at a verse um, a lot earlier in um, Matthew. This is, this is Matthew 5.41, where the Lord says, And whoever compels you to go with him one mile, go with them too. And any Jewish person at the time would have understood um, they were really at the mercy of any Roman soldier or or official who could ask them at any time to uh, carry a load for them. So the disciples knew firsthand at this time with how the Roman Empire ruled their land, what it meant for the rulers of the Gentiles to lord it over them and exercise great authority over them. Now, in some ways, it might be hard for us to relate to the Jewish people um, in the days of Jesus who were living under oppressive rulers like the Gentiles. But today, we can still see people gaining power by stepping over others and being oppressive in how they wield power. Now, on a small scale, I can say I've seen it in my workplace sometimes. You know, I thank the Lord that um, for most of my years working, I've had fair supervisors. But then I have seen, at times, managers that um, I can say they've, they've worked the employees under them to tears, they've lied, they've cheated, and all in ways to try and get higher up the corporate ladder. Now, you don't have to look too far in current events in the news to read about maybe some political leader or some CEO of a company who is... Um, worked his way to the top ruthlessly or exploited people under them. People still, as the Lord puts it, lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. The path of greatness in the kingdom of God is completely different compared to the path of greatness in the world. Really, when you look at what Jesus is saying about what it takes to become great in the kingdom of God, it runs completely contrary and counterintuitive to how we would think a person achieves greatness in the world. Now, you look at some people who are considered great in this world, whether maybe someone's wealthy like Bill Gates or Elon Musk, and maybe not all of them, but a lot of them have made it to the top by looking out for their own interests and serving themselves. But Jesus says, if you want to be great, instead of looking out for yourself, you should be looking out for others. In fact, according to Jesus, the, the greater you want to be, the lower you have to go. There's a, there's a, a, a dissent here. If you want to be great, then the Lord says, you need to be a servant. But if you want to be first among you, Or, as the Lord puts, or, as we might put, the greatest. You have to be in the lowest place of all. You have to be a slave. Now, a servant is a person looking to do the will of his or her master. But a slave is lower in the fact that um, they don't even claim to be their own person. They're owned by someone else. And for those looking for an example to follow of how to be great, Jesus gives himself as example at the end. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. The Lord Jesus was the ultimate servant. He was constantly thinking about other people and never himself. And he was the humblest servant possible. While he was um, ministering day and night, to people and healing people, he's a person that, as he puts it, had nowhere to lay his head. In the last, day of his, the last days of his life, he was washing his disciples' feet. And as doing, in doing his Father's will and dying on the cross, he was, as Isaiah puts it, he was the righteous servant who bore the sin of many. Now looking again at those people who are considered great in this world for a moment, you know, though their uh, wealth and accomplishments, they they sound impressive on paper and they look impressive, but, you know, from an eternal perspective, they haven't accomplished anything at all. And maybe a person climbs to the uh, top of the corporate ladder, maybe they become the head of the company they work at, maybe a person becomes an amazing athlete Gets a gold medal in the Olympics. But a thousand years from now, no one's going to remember those things. No one's going to care. Now, I was just looking at an example of um, one person who's considered like one of the great people in history. Take someone um, uh, like Alexander the Great. He's even um, no one can dispute uh, in, in the world's eyes, he was a great person. He's even got the term great in his title. Um, so he founded, he created one of the uh, largest empires in the world. He was undefeated in battle. And, um, he, you know, who, who, he, I mean, by today's standards, he was a billionaire. But then, um, unexpectedly, in his 30s, he got sick, really sick. And as he lay in his deathbed, he came to this realization that everything he had accomplished was all for nothing. You know, all his victories, all the greatness he had achieved in his life, it was not going to do anything for him beyond the grave. And so he, um, on his deathbed, he made a couple of requests of his generals. He said he asked that when he was being buried, he want all the treasures he had accumulated just strewn on the road and he wanted um, his hands just hang empty, open outside his coffin. And his generals asked, well, why do you want to do that? And his rationale was, well, he wanted to show people, well, you know, for all his wealth that he had acquired, he could not take one penny with him to the grave. It was all gonna be someone else's. And even though he had conquered the known world at the time, he had, like I said, the greatest empire Um, in the world at the time in his control, in his hand he was leaving this world empty handed so is being ambitious being wanting to be great, is that a bad thing? well when it comes to being ambitious in this world it can lead us down a sinful path now, of course, if you're, you, you want to do a good job at your workplace, and you know, if you're on a soccer team, nothing wrong with that. It's natural to want to win. But it can be tempting to get proud and self-focused with our accomplishments and victories. You know, getting to the top can be an idol. And even in the church and in ministry, this can be a temptation rather than actually serving the Lord, sometimes we get focused on you know, wanting to receive recognition or praise from people. We might be tempted to you know, take pride in holding a certain position in the church, whether as a Bible study leader or a deacon or an elder. Now, this was years down the road, but going back to the Apostle John, I think he might have been thinking back to himself, perhaps, when he was a young person, very ambitious, hot hothead, he actually um, writes in the third epistle of John a rebuke to a certain leader in a church. There was a man named Diotrephes who, as John puts it, loved to have the preeminence. Now, we don't know much about Diotrephes. It looks like he was some kind of leader in his church. Uh, Maybe he was an elder. But instead of serving the church, he had become self-centered. He had uh, started to serve himself rather than others. And, to abuse his, and he was abusing his authority. A question I may need to ask myself when I'm serving the church, am I really serving myself, or am I serving the Lord? Is there any pride or self-centeredness in how I'm serving? <coughs> but if you're truly serving the Lord, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious for the Lord. Going back to James and John, um, now, James and John, like I said, they were hot-headed in the past, and the Lord had to correct them before. Um, at that time, I mentioned uh, in that instant when uh, they asked if they, if they could call down fire from heaven on the Samaritan village that had rejected the Lord. Um, it says, Jesus rebuked them and said, "'You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. "'For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, "'but to save them.'" But it's interesting, in this passage in uh, Matthew 20, well, the Lord does tell them they don't know what they're asking for. He's not recorded as actually rebuking James and John for the, request, for the request to be great in His kingdom. He does correct the line of thinking by telling them how to do it right, but he doesn't actually rebuke them. He tells them if you want to truly be great, be a servant, be a slave. Let's compare for a moment to the rewards of greatness in in this world with real spiritual greatness. Like I mentioned, all the wealth, titles, and honors we might acquire in this life, they're all temporary. They're perishable things. Let's read a verse from 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 9.25, where the Apostle Paul talks about a believer running the race of life, obtaining as he puts it, an imperishable crown from the Lord. The reward I, re- I will receive from the Lord at the end of my life, what I've accomplished, that will never go away. That will never be destroyed. And earlier in this gospel, this is um, back in Matthew 6, the Lord Jesus he encouraged believers to lay up, for yourself, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, Michael, I'm not really an ambitious person. I mean, I don't really have this desire to be be great. I'm content where I am. I don't have that kind of drive to be great. But actually, in in terms of our spiritual lives, there's a call for greatness. I'll just read a couple verses again. Uh, So going back to that passage in 1 Corinthians, and speaking of a believer's life, the Apostle Paul says, do you know, not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone, who, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. And looking at another verse was um, in Philippians, Paul, Himself, we could say he's a man with ambition. This is uh, from Philippians chapter three, verse fourteen. Paul says, "I pressed for the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." And by the way, um, ambition for the Lord is not just for a young person. Now, as I was reading this passage. Uh, at first, I was thinking to myself for a moment, you know, well, James and John, they're probably half my age or younger. I mean, um, Matt preached a message where he alluded to the fact that this, uh, many of the disciples may have been teenagers or in their early 20s. And, you know, here I am, I'm um, 42. and I think, well, I'm twice their age. I don't know if I have that kind of drive anymore. But if you look at um, some, some of the men that God used in the past, the Lord uses it both old and young. If you want to see some ambition for the Lord, look at someone um, named Caleb from the Old Testament in the book of Joshua. Um, He was 85 years old when he said, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. What does being a slave or servant of the Lord Jesus look like? I think sometimes we get in our head that um, the person involved in uh, like missionary work or preaching or teaching or leading a Bible study, well, that's someone who's obviously a clear servant of the Lord. But and there, you know, there are many of the Lord's preachers and teachers and missionaries who I'm sure they're great in his kingdom. But then there are also so many other ways of being a servant that may not be as obvious or visible. A believer who's watching the children of a weary um, brother or sister to relieve them. A sister who's um, fixing meals to provide uh, for a family going through hard times. A brother or sister doing the behind the scenes tech work at the church. A sister teaching. Sunday school lessons to maybe just one student. Or that believer who quietly cleans up the church every Sunday without anyone else seeing him or her. All these people are servants of the Lord. And I think it might be surprising to us in the future when we see how great they are in the kingdom of God. A question to ask the Lord in your prayer time this week. Lord, how can I serve you today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for being that example to us of the perfect servant. And Lord, we do pray for your direction. We pray, Lord, that you would show us um, how we can serve you this week. And thank you, Lord, for your word. We do pray this in your name.